Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to interview episode number nine and the hundredth episode of a sixteen music podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to interview episode number nine in episode 100 of my 16 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams. Now, before we move on to this week's episode of the podcast, I quickly want to take the time and say thank you guys for your continued support and for listening to my podcast uh, since episode one. I really, really do appreciate you guys' support. And your continuing listening of the show. And it doesn't matter if you've been listening to this ep- show since episode 1 or episode 50 or 30. How, Whenever you joined in, I want to say thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, because without you, I wouldn't have made it to episode 100. I mean, I didn't think I was going to make it to episode 100. I wasn't sure if I was going to still be doing this podcast, you know, f- for two years. But... I'm still here, and here you guys are still listening. So, you know, I really do appreciate you guys for listening to my podcast. Yeah, I've been doing the show for two years. It's pretty nuts. And so far, I've seen an incredible amount of growth with my podcast. I went from 100 to 200 listens in total to 11,000. That is amazing. And uh, this week's episode and celebration of episode 100 is going to be an interview episode now. As per usual with these interview episodes, I'm going to skip my normal introduction, but just in case you guys just joined my podcast recently, you still don't know what it's about, but hopefully you do. I mean, basically, it's a 60s uh, music podcast to preserve and educate people about this about the specific time frame of music, and each week I take a different song of the 60s, break it down, analyze and talk about my opinion, then dive into the history behind it. Well, today I'm going to be doing something a little different because um, usually, uh, occasionally what I do with these interview episodes is that occasionally I will talk to someone from a speci- from that specific time period of music and show them and show you guys exactly what was going on back then from their perspective and really get a bird's eye view on actual music history and get, and get um, someone else's perspective from someone who was actually there and someone who was in a big band at the time back in the 60s and get their his- perspective on the history behind uh, you know that very that very cool decade of music and uh, today I'm gonna be talking to a guy who was in a band that I did I want to say two years ago like you know the fall of 2018 the first year of this podcast I did them and they were a really really good band my personal favorite as far as my favorite sort of underrated 60s bands I think these guys are incredible and man do they have an insane story. I mean, these guys, you know, it was just crazy because, you know, they were signed to a record label that was owned and controlled by the New York City mob. I mean, they're just, and how they even got signed to that label, that's even a crazier story. And today, we're going to get into that, plus some of the history behind some of their stories, behind some of their hit songs, like Crimson Clover, Moni Moni, Crucial Persuasion, I think we're low now. Some of their really, really cool and big hits that have definitely crossed over into different decades. I mean, I think there were three artists that had major top 10 hit records with cover versions of their songs in the 80s. And, uh, you know, it's just 
I mean, they were an incredible band, and today I'm going to be talking their bass player, who surprisingly, the cool part about this guy is that even though he was a bass player in the band, he's definitely had a lot of moments to shine on a lot of those records. I mean, his playing could definitely be heard in Crimson Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion and some of their other records as well, but he's definitely the he's definitely the original bass player of the band, and he played on all the hits, and we're going to talk about the history behind his band today and talk about kind of what happened in the end to how the band broke up, but we'll save that for later. But for now, uh, I would like to introduce you guys to the ninth uh, guest that I'm having on my podcast today. And uh, please welcome the original bass player for Tommy James and the Shondells, Mr. Mike Vale. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> okay, good mm. for you. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I was sorry about that. Sorry about those technical difficulties, Mike. But how are you doing no today, man? I'm doing great, Sam. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing really, really well. Well, uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for uh, for uh, ha- joining me on this podcast today and talk with you about the amazing, most <laughs> incredible music of the band that you were in. Tommy James and the Shondells. Now, here's the thing. So, with my podcast, I basically what the whole premise of this show is really for me is that I'm I grew up listening to this oldies music from the late '50s and '60s and early '70s, and I'm actually I'm pretty young. I'm 24 years old, and oh, I yeah. you know, I, which is unusual for someone my age to be really into this kind of music, but. You know, I, I've I've always been a fan of it. I've always loved it for a very long time, and uh, and I and I know that you know this specific kind of music can also a lot of people in my age group, a lot of millennials can love this stuff just as much as me. But the problem is, is that there's so many really great bands from the '60s. A lot of my people my age aren't familiar with and don't really know too much about them specifically you know so today i'm going to give you a little i'm going to give my listeners a little bit uh, i'm going to talk with them about the really interesting and just insane history behind your band because you know even though your band you know your your peak was from 1966 to 1970 you know within that time frame you had 19 sharded hits and your music has been covered by literally dozens and dozens of artists from groups like Joan Jett and Billy Idol and Tiffany and Billy Joe Armstrong recently. And basically, right. your, your stuff has just been all over the place ever since it first came out in the 60s. Yeah. And it really, it, it's lasted for a very long time. And I just want to say that you're one. You're actually the first bass player that I've, uh, that I've interviewing uh, for my podcast. And, you know, it's, and I, and I want to get a little bit more on technical details about you know the 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 bass the bass sure. p- parts that you uh, that you basically uh, played on those records, but basically, this is going to be really really cool for my listeners because 
you know, out of all the people that have gotten the most press about, you know, Tommy James and the Shondells, the people when 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 Billboard magazine and all the major music publications, when they want to find out more about the history behind this specific band, they automatically turn to Tommy James. But I never really seen too many interviews or too many people talk to who the other people that were in the band, you know, like right. Eddie Gray and Peter Lucia and Ronnie right. Rosman and some of the other people in the band. And this is going to be really cool because, yeah. you know, I don't think any, I don't think there's been any other podcaster that's interviewed you, or maybe you've done some other ones before, but what I'm trying to say is that uh, this is going to be cool. Cause we're going to, my listeners are going to get your perspective specifically on the history behind this band, which might slightly differ from uh, Tommy mm-hmm. James's perspective, you know, it's consider. It's definitely you know, going to be different. Yeah, ex- exactly. Based on what you, yeah. Based on what you sent me, uh, Sam, I can tell you that uh, I, I've got answers that uh, uh, are not quite the same as you're going to be expecting. Right. <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, you probably you probably have some really cool stories behind. You know some some of some of the some of the songs that I'm you know and I and I've done my homework by the way I I know a lot of the stories behind a lot of those songs and I and I, and I know like kind of what happened behind the scenes with a lot of those records but I think you might your your perspective on it might might definitely differ from the from the stories that Tommy James just told over and over and over again yeah, on, on, on a, a lot a lot a lot a lot of his interviews and you know it's interesting because you know. Your your bass playing was definitely highlighted on a lot of those records. I mean, you know, your you know, I've I some of those songs I've listened to. You know, your bass playing is definitely up in front and center, and that's really really cool that someone like you, who wasn't Paul McCartney, who basically had your your bass parts basically mixed so well in the, in the songs that it really just right. you know it, it it made you seem like you were really important member of the band even though you weren't like the you know the namesake of the band and uh you know and also i wanted to ask you like just just this one specific thing what was it do you think about tommy james and the shondells's music what what was that secret ingredient you know to your stuff that made your music so everlasting throughout the years and what 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 about it had what created what about that music that made it had such longevity to be able to see through generations, you know, even through today's musical climate. Like I said before, Billy Joe Armstrong's covered one of your songs and actually, you know, and, and recorded it. And, uh, you know, right. and it also, you know, tell me a little bit about what is it about your band's music that you think that that basically what what made it so that way it could it could live live a lot longer other than just. What, what you know, other than just basically oldies radio shelf life? Sure. Um, well, uh, so, so there could be several ideas what I think happened there. Uh, by the way, that was quite an introduction, and uh, I, I don't think my interview is going to live up to all the hype that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give it my best shot. Uh, but as to what the secret of our success was, there's a couple things. Uh, First of all, you just touched on something in, during inter- introducing me uh, that uh, uh, is one of the reasons uh, for our success. Uh, probably the biggest key to our success in my mind was uh, the fact that people people only hear about lead singers and so forth in the groups, but uh, nothing about the rest of the guys. Well, the rest of the guys in this particular case 
were tremendous musicians. Um, three of the four Shondells are music majors. I was saying this in college. Wow. Uh, people, wow. Often, people often think of uh, the uh, uh, Shondells as being a bubblegum group or a right. uh, gar- garage band, but, but they don't know the story. What they're basing that on is our first hit was Hanky Panky, and that's sort of a garage band sound. Right. So I, I guess everybody expected us to stay in that category, and we uh, we veered very far from from that category. Oh, yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. But the the main reason was was the talent in the group. Uh, not only did we have uh, good players and guys that really knew music, uh, we had uh, uh, three of the four Shondells were uh, also lead singers right. in prior bands. Wow! Uh, I was a lead I was a lead singer with uh, uh, the Sonics. Uh, Ronnie Rothman was a lead singer with the Raconteurs, and Eddie Gray uh, and I forgot the group he was in back then. But all of these guys. Uh, lead singers and that's one of the reasons the harmony is so great in in our stuff also is because we knew how how to marry uh, the harmony of lines together so uh, uh, that's probably one of the biggest things but another good quality was that uh, uh, the fact that we were together so so long and stayed on top for so long that gave us a lot of time to experiment and we were constantly experimenting with sounds and, and ideas uh, to try to remain on the cutting edge of the music industry. We, we didn't want to just be along for the ride. We wanted to be a leading factor. Uh, and so we'd go into the studio and just just do different crazy things. And uh, so we were very inventive. Uh, and I think the combination of those things that I just mentioned to you uh, really are the reasons why uh, we had so much success. Wow, that's so interesting. And I also want to say to our listeners, a lot of people probably don't know this, but the craziest thing about your band and specifically like what happened with, with your history is that, you know, the, 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 what happened with, with the label that you were assigned to and everything that went down, you know, with, uh, with roulette records, it, you know, your, the history of your band was almost like, you know, a musical version of the Sopranos. It very much had <laughs> that, that vibe of, you know, that, that Italian New York City mobster vibe, even though it was basically like th- there was a band involved. It wasn't like it sure. there wasn't there wasn't like any there wasn't like, you know, any anybody like Dean Martin or Frank Snatch or anybody else involved. It was actually it was it was a band that was that was huge and that was having a lot of success. I mean, your your band was basically signed by a label that was owned and controlled by one of the biggest New York City mob, mob mob crime families at that time, which was the Genovese crime family. We'll get into that in a minute. But first, let's yeah. kind of backtrack for a little bit and go kind of into the beginning because basically, um, you know, what I want to start with specifically was Hanky Panky because there's a there's a there's a couple of you know interesting stories I've heard about. Uh, this specific song, and I'm and I'm just basically going to start out with I'm going to start with this. Tommy is a 12 year old kid who went by the name of Tommy Jackson, and basically what he did is that he when he was in high school, he formed a band called Tommy and the Tornadoes, and right. you know they basically they they formed right and they and they were basically doing your basic garage rock covers at the time. 
you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, and they were doing basic cover songs, you know, like Angel Baby, like by Rosie and the Originals. And they were doing right. songs like, you know, st- you know, the by the string alongs wheels and, you know, just your basic instrumental, you know, rock songs and songs by the fireballs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And basically, you know, when when it came down to going to the studio to record, uh, they decided to change their name to the Shondells. And they actually, the reason why they changed their name to the Shondells is because they wanted to their name to sound like a guy who was a one-hit wonder who recorded a song in Chicago called This Time. And his name was Troy Shondell. So they decided they decided to name themselves uh, the Shondells, you know, after him, basically. And mm-hmm. basically, how Tommy James wound up recording Hanky Panky was because in, ni- I want to say 1963, he saw a band called The Spinners play that song live in the club right. in Niles, Michigan. And he mm-hmm. was like, wow, like this band was like, you know, everyone was going nuts over the song. And he had no idea who the writers were or, you know, or any or any of the people like behind the song. He just knew that people were going crazy over Hanky Panky. So basically what he did is that he went into the studio. Actually, check this out. So I found out that, you know, his. and by the way, this was not the band that you were in because th- you got to keep in mind that there was that the first incarnation of Shondells was not the same incarnation of Shondells that you were in that played on, I think, We're Alone Now and Moni Moni and Crimson and Clover and Crystal Wolverstation. This was a completely different group with guys like Larry Coverdale and Craig Villeneuve right. and guys right. like that. And uh, basically, when they went into the studio to, to record Hanky Panky, they actually did it at a radio station in Niles, Michigan. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Tommy James actually forgot the words when he recorded the song. It was just, he basically, when he recorded the song, he just tried to remember the lyrics of the song on the fly and basically just improvised them on the spot. And basically what happened was that it was kind of an amateur recording. It was recorded at the back of a, of, of a, a radio station in Niles, Michigan. And then it got released locally on a label that was based in Niles called Snap Records. And this was like in February of 64. So this was like right before the Beatles came to America. And basically what happened was that that record was released on Snap in 1964. And then it dies out, doesn't do anything because it didn't get the national distribution that it needed to really have a, 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 a to really become like a huge hit single. It needed like a bigger label that had stronger distribution in order for it to get in order for it to become a hit, but it didn't have that. So basically, what happened was that um, there was this DJ in Pittsburgh named Mike Huggy Buggy, who basically dug up Panky Panky from a big bin of forty fives, and on and and through those bin of forty fives, he found the local Snap single and started playing it over the airwaves. And then all of a sudden, when he started playing the song, you know, the switchboards lit up in Pittsburgh and the song became number one in Pittsburgh. And this was like a couple years later. This was in 1966. So this was after Hanky Panky was recorded. And by the way, when due to the disappointment of Hanky Panky, Tommy James broke up with that version of the band and actually started playing in cover bands all across the country like in 1965 and then in 1966 that's when this dj was like hey man i discovered your record hanky panky through the original um the the original snap single and i am playing it in on my in my radio station it's blowing up the switchboards are lighting up people are going nuts 
over the song. Can you please come to Pittsburgh with your group of Shondells to play the song? And uh, and Tommy's like, well, um, uh, yeah, good. I, I would do that, except that I don't have a band anymore. Like all the guys I used to play with, they all kind of split off. So Tommy James had dilemma of this song, Hanky Panky, climbing up the charts and becoming what would become a huge hit. But he had no, you know, he had no label and he didn't have a band, you know, to support the song. And I'm going to let you take it from there. So basically, you know, he goes to Pittsburgh and then he finds your band, the Rancon Tours. And, you know, I'm going to let you take it from there. Um, you have done your homework, haven't you? Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me let me fill in some blanks. Uh, you have it just about right, but let me fill in some blanks. All right. Uh, back around the time that uh, you referred to, where Tommy had recorded Hanky Panky, then broke up with his Shondells, and and he was running around playing cover cover uh, music. Right around that same time, back in Pittsburgh, there's a group called the Raconteurs that, right. that you referred to. Uh, and the Raccoon Tours were a soul band out of wow. uh, St. Vincent, Vincent College. As I told you before, we had uh, the music majors and a bunch of horn players, and we uh, we were just uh, doing great in the Pittsburgh area. In fact, we were the, the band at that time in western Pennsylvania, but wow. mostly in demand. And um, so uh, we, uh, at that time, we were doing uh, things like uh, concerts at the various... Uh, colleges around the area and some nightclubs and things like that. Uh, and uh, before meeting Tommy, uh, and even hearing about Tommy, we hooked up with a guy in the Pittsburgh area by the name of Bob Mack. Now, mm. if you read the book, you know that Bob Mack is one of the characters in that book. Right. Bob Mack, Bob Mack had a bunch of teen clubs in the western Pennsylvania area. Right. And uh, he would bring in to his clubs a lot of the big recording artists of the day, uh, like Chubby Checker and uh, Fabian and Frankie Avalon and all those types of guys. Uh, and he got a hold of us because we had a good reputation for backing people up and asked us to start backing his his stars up in his, his club. So the Raccoon Tours became Bob Mack's club band. And uh, so when... when uh, the record, uh, well, let me back up again. Bob Mack also was the guy who originally found the SNAP record of Hanky Panky wow. in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, he used to look for uh, different music that he could play in his clubs and because the kids were used to hearing the same stuff all the time, so he was always looking for something weird. So he started playing Hanky Panky in his clubs before the radio stations ever heard it. Uh, and the kids were going crazy. So his friend, Bob Mack's friend, was Mad Mike, the guy you referred to. Right. In the radio station. Mad Mike heard about what was going on, and he started playing it on his radio show. And then it grew from that to KDKA, which is a the huge station in Pittsburgh. And it just went nuts from there and became a very big local Western Pennsylvania and Ohio hit. So uh, that's uh, really how that all came together. Uh, and then when the, uh, when, uh, the, uh, the person you referred to that got a hold of Tommy and said, come to, come right. to Pittsburgh, your phone right. is breaking. Right. That was mad. Or that was uh, Bob Mack. Wow. Bob Mack brought, brought him into Pittsburgh 
and took him around to the different stations and introduced him and everything. And then he said, uh, now about this band you need. He said, I got the perfect band for you. Uh, and Tommy said, who's that? He said, well, there's a group called the Rack on Tours. Uh, they work for me at all my clubs, and they're a huge hit in the Pittsburgh area, and they can do anything you want to do. So uh, he says, I want you to come with me tonight, uh, and uh, I'll take you over. And they have a tour tonight in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and I'll take you in, and I'll, I'll let you listen to them. So then uh, Tommy and Bob Mack came into the Thunderbird Lounge in Greensburg, and we were doing our show, and uh, uh, Bob Mack introduced me to Tommy, and uh, that's how we all met. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 definitely um interesting. And by the way, I'm gonna piggyback on this. Um, I I want you to do some verification for me. Let me know this is true. When Hanky Panky was climbing the charts, Tommy James decided to go to New York, and he basically took the original Snap single, and I he's t- told this story before a bunch of different times. And this is supposedly the story of how he got signed to Real Records. Tommy took the original single of Hanky Panky to all the major labels in New York and all of them greenlighted the song. I'm talking Columbia, RCA, Atlantic, um, Camastrutra, they all wanted to release it. And then what happened was that literally he uh, at the day after they all said yes, you know, to rec- to basically um, you know, releasing the song, you know, under under their label, uh basically one all one by one they all called them up and said listen we got to pass we can't record <laughs> we well, sorry we can't release the song you know and then Tommy James is like wait a minute like what's going on like why can't you release this and then what happened was that Jerry Wexler who was the head of Atlantic Records basically told them that right after you called them up and basically you pitched the single hanky panky and they all said yes Morris Levy got word of that, and he called up all the labels and told them, "Hey, this is my record. <laughs> you can't, you can't, re- you can't. Uh, this is you can't release this because I'm going to release it." And then basically, when Tommy James found out about that, that's how they got signed to Roulette Records. But I mean, is is that 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 is a true story, right? For the most part. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, before we even went to New York, though, uh, when. Uh, Tommy had asked uh, me that night about joining, joining uh, about uh, the raconteurs becoming the Shondells. Uh, we said no. Um, we, uh, we knew what Hanky Panky was, and we knew what we were. Uh, and we said, well, we didn't say no. What we said was, hey, let us think about this, because uh, we had a lot of things going on in, in the Pittsburgh area, and we were doing our own recording and our own writing. So uh, we um, got together the next day, and talked about it, and Ronnie, the, uh, the keyboard guy, he says, you know, he says, I know this is not our type of music, but let's, let's look at it this way. Suppose we go to New York, and we record uh, for Roulette, and, or he didn't know Roulette at the time, he said, we record for whoever, and uh, we only have one hit. So what? We come back, we reform the Rack on Tours, and we continue on our, our own way. So... That was our plan. We didn't think that we were going to be lasting very long because wow. we were ba- we were basing our potential future on the song that we didn't like, Hanky Panky. So, so we were very uh, nonchalant about wanting to go on the road, but we decided to do it anyhow, just take a crack at it. But anyhow, that then takes us to New York, and um, yeah, we went into uh, 
by the time we got to, to New York, uh, uh, there was already, already uh, plenty of uh, buzz going on about the, the song because people in New York uh, already knew that it was breaking in Pittsburgh, so they knew that it had great uh, commercial attraction. Uh, so uh, I don't remember him taking Snap record, though. By the time we went to New York, uh, there was a outfit out of Pittsburgh called Red Fox, and Red Fox hijacked the Snap Records and printed up a bunch of stuff on, on Red Fox label. Wow. So so the Red Fox, I think, is what we took to New York to play for uh, all the people in New York. We didn't have that many copies of, of Snap Records left, so all we had was uh, the ones that were... Um, uh, printed up by by Red Fox, so we uh, took that to New York, and yeah, we took it around to all the different labels, and everybody said, yeah, that's that's great. And, you know, we'll talk to you tomorrow, and like you said, by by tomorrow, we found out that Morris Levy and his uh, mob voice just told everybody, stay the hell away from this group. It's mine. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it's crazy because they were. I think Roulette was desperate for a hit. At that time, because they hadn't had a hit since "Easier Said Than Done" by the SX, and they That's and right. and they also had Lou Christie, you know, with a couple singles, you know, like yep. the Gyps with like the Gypsy cried and Two Faces of I. But at that point, they were you know they were really desperate for like a huge uh, band at the time, you know, to basically, and they 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 essentially became the Poster Boys, you know, your group that you were that you were in. You know, it's funny because Tommy James talks about this all the time. Uh, you know, he really feels like it was a blessing in disguise for him to get signed to Roulette Records because he feels like that if he had gotten signed to a bigger label like Columbia or RCA or Warner Brothers or one of those really big corporate labels, he felt like he he the band would have been a one-hit wonder because he felt like they were they, they would have been assigned with like a... Um, an A and R guy, and they would have had they would have they would have been replaced by studio musicians, and they wouldn't have had you know the 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 creative control that they wound up having when they got signed to Roulette Records because what happened was that Morris Levy you know basically gave you guys the keys to the castle. He basically allowed you to a form your own production team, and b also be the musicians on your records. You know he basically right. he allowed you. Basically, I want to say like final print, uh, you know, like approval over your songs. You know, he basically allowed you to, you know, basically take 100 percent control over your music at a time when a lot of other bands didn't have that. You know, right. so, you know, you know, that's basically what Tommy James said. He said that, you know, if you know, if he felt like if if he was signed to a bigger label like Columbia or Atlantic or RCA, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have nearly as had that much creative control over his stuff. He wouldn't. You know, he wouldn't have been able to do as much as he as he was able to do when he was signed to Roulette. And by the way, I wanted to ask you um, before we move on with the other stuff. What kind of songs were you uh, playing with the Rancon tours before uh, you were signed? You you basically became the new Shondells. Uh, can you can you can you, can you yeah. talk about that for a little bit? Because I yeah, remember sure. you were saying uh, that you were a soul band, so I'm curious to see sure. like what like basically like what was the material like kind of before the Shondells? Yeah, well, the material that we were playing before we became the Shondells is the Hanky Panky album. Wow! Uh, and by that by that I mean this: uh, when we first uh, started out recording for Roulette, we went up to uh, their studios and stuff. 
and all they had was a guy by the name of Henry Glover who was doing the production, and they had a catalog of songs uh, that they uh, were going to ask us to, to record on the Hanky Panky album. Well, we didn't like uh, the, their production team, and we didn't like the songs. that We thought that they were really bad. Wow. So, uh, so it took a while for us to get the keys to the, <laughs> the castle, as you call it. We, it. It took a year or two for us to build our own reputation and come, have Morris come to the point where he realized, you know, hey, that these guys are better than what I got, so let's let, let's let them go. Uh, right. But that's, that's what happened there. But uh, the, uh, uh, So we talked Roulette into letting us record the songs that we had been doing out on concert, both as the tours and then eventually the Shondells, as our, our album. Uh, there was um, songs like I Sang Lead on I'm So Proud, uh, Love Makes the World Go Round, uh, Good Lovin'. Uh, we also did I'll Go Crazy, uh, and wow. we did, uh, we did uh, Shake a Tail Feather and Cleo's Mood by Junior Walker. Wow. Um, stuff like that we were, were blowing in. If you go to the, to the album, the Hanky Panky album, the, the, those songs are all on there just as we used to play them in concert. Wow. So, uh, by the way, as far as roulette, uh, as far as roulette, uh, uh, they were more interested in being a front for the mob. Right. Like when we first got there, they they were they weren't really as deeply into uh, what they became. Uh, I, I think we really made them what they what they became from all the hits that we had. But uh, so we had to sort of walk gently and be kind of quiet because. Uh, they were uh, a pretty wild group, and we'll talk about that a little bit, too. Right. Also, um, I wanted to talk with you about some of the, uh, some of the actually, a little bit about, um, uh, you know, uh, the production behind Say I Am and your next two singles, uh, Say I Am and It's Only Love, which were actually like... And at this point, you know, you, you were... Where, where do they... Where, where were those songs recorded... And you know, were 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 you, were the Tommy were Tommy James and Shondells were they the musicians on those songs, uh, you know, or and were, and were they recorded live? And also, um, you know, I always I always wondered like who who did those crazy backup vocals on "It's Only Love," and also like can you talk a little bit about the production, the sort of the behind the scenes production behind both those songs? Because this was before I think we're low now, so this was kind of when. Uh, you know, you were basically st- you were still working in a different studio, Bell Sound, right? Or it was one yes, of the, yeah, right. yeah. So basically, you know, this is before uh, I think we're alone now. So this is before you're working at Allegro. So were these songs recorded live or were they were they multi-tracked? I'm just curious because I know I think we're alone now was multi-tracked, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, yeah, the uh, I, uh, say I am. Uh, had been out previous uh, to our recording it. I, I, was it Fireballs, I think? Yeah, the Fireballs, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that was done at Bell Sound, Bell Sound in New York. And it was done under the auspices of Henry Glover as the production right. manager. Uh, and so was It's Only Love. Uh, it's Only Love was one of the songs in, in their catalog, the roulette catalog that I didn't care for that much, but uh, we did our best we could for it uh, with it. And it came out pretty decent, but uh, it wasn't one of my favorite songs. Right. Uh, and that was all That was all done on uh, four-track. Um, and when we when we recorded on four-track and would have to have 12 tracks worth of, 
music, what we would do is bounce things. I don't know if you're familiar with that process, right? Or not, but you know, would be would fill up three three tracks of the four, and then combine those and bounce it over to track number four, and then fill up the three again, and keep doing that until we had a, a complete song. Uh, so right. That's how we ended up doing that. But but it's only love was the last thing we did at Bell Sound, I believe. Then we then we hooked up with. Uh, uh, Cordell and Gentry. Right. That was a different story. Right. So, uh, can you talk a little, can you share like a little bit about, uh, just like one really cool mob story that you have about, about, about roulette? Like was like when you, when you first met like the guys that work for promotion and the guys that, and the guys that basically did all, all, all the management and the, 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 when you met the real mobsters, can you tell me, one specific story that kind of sticks with you and also talk a little bit about uh you know because one story i heard and i actually read tommy james's book and he said that there was one story that uh morris levy had basically over had heard about someone making illegal bootleg copies of one of their of one of one of your guys's hits and basically uh morris levy sent one of his henchmen out to basically go and uh, you know, tried threaten him to burn him alive for making those illegal copies of uh, you know those songs, and so that's just show you how intense they were as far as uh, you know those people were were concerned. But I want you to kind of share with me a little bit about about just one really cool mob story that you have about the people that you interact with at Roulette. Yeah, um, well, my my concern about Roulette started off. Uh, the very day that we found out that Morris had enough clout and power that he could call all the major record companies and tell them to back off. Right. Anybody with that kind of, kind of clout. I didn't know what kind of clout it was at that time, uh, but I knew that he had it. And uh, so I, uh, I come to find out not long after that, when we used to go visit Roulette, that uh, normally you walk into a, to a record company and the, the instruments you'd see would be guitars and basses and, and keyboards and uh, people practicing. And the only instruments we saw at Roulette were the guys walking around with their, their billy clubs and their guns in their pocket. Wow. Uh, and uh, that was scary. And, and they would uh, they'd go into the back room and uh, uh, have their meetings. And if you dare walk in, in that room without being invited, uh, you were in a lot of deep crap. But uh, so we, I just stayed away from there. But one of the stories that I uh, uh, don't know if your listeners have ever heard this or not, but uh, when the mob used to, uh, the different families, the mob used to have their, their family wars and fight with each other. Uh, if they couldn't go after the leader of that particular family or the heads of that particular family, they would go after the cash cow. Of that particular family. In other words, they would they would do something to harm whatever was making them money, so that they could uh, undergird or uh, erode whatever support they had financially. Well, guess who the cash cow was for Roulette Records? It was us. Wow. So we uh, we at one point uh, were told, "Hey, you guys are going to take a trip for a month or so. Uh, where are we going? Well, well, we'll tell you about it when we get there." Uh, but what they were doing was just getting us the hell out of the way so that uh, we wouldn't get harmed during one of their wars. Wow. Uh, so that's uh, that's how crazy things got with Roulette Records. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a survival time as much as it was uh, uh, creating music. 
Wow, that's crazy. And by the way, um, I want you to share uh, one really cool road story specifically because when Hanky Panky obviously became a huge hit, you guys were kind of basically you had to hit the road. You were basically you were you you were you were a, a national. You became a national touring act because you had a number one record, and then you had a and then you had two follow up records that basically hit also made the top forty. So at this time, like. What were some groups that you kind of that you kind of ran across, or some really interesting people that you that you ran into on the road that kind of made a lasting impression on you, or what were some people on the road that you thought, okay, these guys are really good, or these, or you, or what were some groups that you kind of became friends with when you guys were out touring, you know, just just as just when Hanky Panky was on the charts, and also with uh, the, your two other follow ups. Um. Well, we, we used to play a lot with uh, uh, the Rascals. Wow. Uh, we did uh, a lot of shows with uh, Beach Boys, um, some out of Chicago, out of, out of the Midwest, did a lot with them. Um, and some of those guys were really fun. And, and uh, uh, one, one of the things that I enjoyed um, on the road with one of the groups was back when they were just starting, The Who, um, we played with them at a place called uh, County Stadium in Milwaukee. That was the original. Wow. Uh, that was the original ballpark. That uh, I think it was the Milwaukee Braves back then, before the Mariners, or not the Mariners, but before the Brewers. And we were we did a show there. And during the day, while we were getting ready for the show that night, we were permitted to go on the field and play baseball at County Stadium. So we played each other, and uh, uh, you could do that with certain guys because. It, they were like you. They they came from the same type of roots. Right. Other guys had their other guys had their their heads up their butt and uh, thought that they were special. And uh, so sometimes it was hard to get along with some of them. But uh, right. those are the type of things I remember and I enjoyed. Right. And also, um, let's talk about. Uh, I think we're alone now for a minute because this is definitely probably one of the one of your most iconic songs because. This is the first song that you wrote, wrote and recorded with Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell. And can you talk about how you met them for a second? Because you know they they really became instrumental with you know your with your band's success. Because uh, you know this is after Say I Am It's Only Love. So you know basically like what what when you first met these two guys, what were your first initial pre impressions of them and also one one really interesting story i heard about i think we're alone now was that when uh when Bo and richie originally pitched the song to tommy james it was a slow song it was a ballad it was a super it was almost kind of like um baby i'm yours by barbara lures they're kind of like one of those one of those slow ballad songs and then tommy james heard it and was like mm, i don't really like this i think i'm going to speed it up and make it you know, make it sound more upbeat, and then he, and then he, and then he threw in that that baseline in there. But I'm gonna let you take it from there. Uh, yeah, the uh, the meeting with uh, uh, Gentry and Cordell was uh, a chance meeting. Uh, it's not like we had heard about their great work or they had heard about us or anything like that. Uh, Tommy uh, was dating somebody back then, uh, whose roommate uh, was friends with. Uh, uh, Richie Cordell, and uh, uh, he said to the, the uh, to Tommy, he says, "Let me play you something." So he plays, I think we're alone now. And Tommy says, "Wow, that's great." He says, uh, 
who is that? And he told him Richie Cordell and Bo Gentry. And he said, can I meet them? Can, can we get together? So uh, that's how that all happened. It was just a chance, chance wow. meeting. And you're right. It was a, uh, the song uh, was a uh, ballad at the time. Uh, but uh, then after uh, they got to know each other pretty well, uh, Tommy and Bo and Richie uh, went into the studio. And Tommy says that he wanted to um, uh, speed the song up a little bit and make it a little more pop. So uh, they laid a demo down and uh, to use as a baseline to, to show to Morris Levy and, and Roulette and so forth and got him all excited. Um, and uh, then uh, we decided at that point, yeah, that, that's going to be a good song. Let's, let's put it... Let's do the master track. So Tommy, at, th at that point, invited Jimmy Wisner uh, to do the production on this particular album. Uh, I think we're on the album. So uh, uh, Jimmy came in, and uh, he brought in some of his uh, uh, musician friends, uh, and uh, also Pete and R Ronnie and I came up, and uh, we did our part. Uh, and as far as the musicians in the session, uh, on... Uh, that day, I don't remember it. Oh, they were so this is this this is where I come in because actually I did my research because I looked this up on there's a there's a there's a there's an article on classic tracks uh, printed by Mix Magazine that actually talks about uh, the musicians on the song. It was basically uh -huh. um, Joe Macko on bass, Bobby Gregg on drums, Artie Butler playing the on deal line organ. And Paul Griffin playing the piano, which actually got taken off the original master recording. Right. Like, like the, there was there was originally a piano in the song that got taken off the original master recording. Right. And uh, right. essentially, it was, and also Tommy James and Eddie Gray are playing guitar on that record specifically, and I believe it was recorded on the eight track. And what I've read is that uh, the basically when you guys went in the studio to record that, you guys recorded the bass. And the and 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 the guitars first, and then the drums, and then everything else after that, right? For the, is that is yeah, that's that pretty sound? much it? Yeah. yeah. By it's the way, a, by the way, I actually wanted to ask you there that very very iconic, distinctive bass part on that record. That must have been a combination of you and a session musician, right? Or was that you and Eddie Gray, or that I'm talking about the dun 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 that part? Like, what what was yeah. that specifically? Was that you and a, and, a, and a session bass player, or was that you plus Eddie Gray? And you know, we had we we had all three uh, uh, instruments on the original recording. Now, in the mix down, uh, there was a combination of those three instruments left: two basses and a guitar. I don't know whether they all stayed and just complimented each other or in the mix down whether Tommy uh, married two of them or three of them or w what he did. So I'm really not sure. Huh. Uh, but uh, there was a combination of, uh, of, of uh, picking going on uh, during that particular uh, uh, bass line. And that's why it sounded so, so in interesting because of uh, how we put those instruments together right i mean essentially and it's so interesting because with that with that syncopated like pick no bass thing that was that was the really the beginning of bubblegum that was before yeah. like that was before like you know basically you know what happened was that richie cordell and bo jenry took that pick no bass thing incorporated that in records by you know the ohio express and 1923 oh, yeah. and all that stuff yeah too. but it's so it's so interesting because but they actually did that first 
with Tommy and James from the Shondells. And by the way, um, what do you remember what kind of bass you know you were using at this time specifically, and what kind of amp you were using, and if your bass was plugged in direct or if it was, uh, if or if it, if it was if it was mic'd up with an amp. I always used uh, an Ampeg amp. Um, it was a B eighteen or yeah, I think it was B eighteen. Yeah, uh, Ampeg and the uh, it was a big eighteen inch speaker in it. And I always used my uh, Fender Jazz nineteen sixty seven Fender Jazz, which I still have on my wall downstairs. Wow! Uh, for all the recording. Now over the years, since we had so many hits, we had everybody from Gibson to Fender and Rickenbacker and everywhere else. Uh, Box and all those people giving us instruments. If we played them on stage, we could have them. So I would always play at least one of those instruments on stage, just to, so that I could keep the rest of them. Uh, wow, but, that's. Uh, that... I, never, I never really used them in the studio because I loved my, my jazz and my ampeg so much. Wow, that's so interesting because, you know. The Fender P bass was really the the pop and instrument at that time, but there was a couple guys that played jazz bass, specifically Joe Osborne, you know, who was basically like the the one of the one of the Wrecking Crew bass players at that right. time. You know, he actually used a Fender jazz bass. You know that, and you know, and at the time it was, but at the time it was really the the P bass that was really the one that people were using quite a lot. But I find right. it kind of kind of interesting how you basically used. Um, uh, a, you know, a jazz bass, and uh, that that's really that's really really cool. Um, but yeah, so so Tommy James puts his lead vocal on "I Think We're Alone Now" on uh, basically in uh, in December of 1966, Christmas Day in 1966, and the song gets released in 19 January of 1967, and then it peaks on Billboard in March of 1967. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, like, where were you when you first heard these songs on the radio? And can you talk a little bit about, do you remember, like, who were some of the DJs that were responsible for making these songs hits? I mean, do you remember, like, who was the first DJ to play I Think We're Alone Now? Or who were some of the, 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 the promotion men on Roulette that basically, you know, flew out to the radio stations and talked to DJs and made sure these songs got played? Yeah, sure. Uh, the uh, I think we're alone now. Um, I believe that uh, KDKA, no KQV in Pittsburgh, I believe had the the exclusive on I think we're alone now. Wow. Uh, and uh, WLS uh, in uh, Chicago had the exclusive. They they both pretty much broke the record, broke in Pittsburgh and Chicago simultaneously. Wow. And. Uh, it was uh, Chuck Brinkman in KQV, and I'm trying to think of which jog it was for WLS. Well, um, I mean, Dick Biondi was the main guy at the at WLS at the yeah, time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. it was probably him, but I, I just couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that's uh, that's what broke that song. Yeah, and and it's so interesting because at this point, you know, you had Hanky Panky, you had CIM. You had It's Only Love, and then you had I Think We're Alone Now, which was another top 10 record. At this point, you know, you were you weren't no you were no longer considered like, you know, one of those three hit wonder bands that had like one big hit plus a couple small hits. You were in the big leagues now. You were in the you were in the same leagues as groups like the Turtles and the Love and Spoonful 
and you know, and the rascals. I mean, you were you were basically in the same kind of you know you know vein as a lot of those other groups. You were you were considered like basically like you were you were a huge you know band that was all of a sudden being taken seriously by the general public, you know, and this was and this was basically at that time, you know, it was you were you were you were no longer considered like one of those three hit wonder bands that just dropped off the charts and that's it. You were you know, you were in the big leagues with all the other groups. Yeah, that's correct. Um when we when we first started out, uh uh with Hanky Panky, uh and uh the excitement back then was just hearing your song on the radio. Right. I mean, uh, that had not happened before. Right. Uh, even even the Rack on Tours uh, never had a real uh, successful song. Uh, the So that was the thrill back then. However, the more songs you recorded and the more success you had, the um, what, you, what excited you changes. Uh, then we were looking for a chart. We wanted to see how far up the chart we could go. Right. That's what would excite us. If we could make a national chart somehow. And then from there, uh, it goes on to the next step, and that's uh, can we make it to top ten? Uh, and actually, the, the ultimate uh, uh, thrill is going to number one in the country, which we did three times. So uh, uh, those are the things that excited us. And, and then it became uh, the thrill of watching the people who you idolized as a kid, uh, watching your song overtake them. Right. So for instance, for instance, in the case of Hanky Panky, uh, we knocked Frank Sinatra out of, out of number one with Strangers in the Night. Wow. And, you know, whoever would have ever thought, as I was uh, going into my music career, I'd be dealing with uh, Frank Sinatra. My God. Then wow. Later on, it was uh, leaping over... Uh, some other great stars who who you idolized, and uh, so you're what 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 excited you changes, but but that's that's a good thing because that means that you keep climbing. You're right. always looking for the the higher star, right? And uh, it keeps you very interested, and uh, it also keeps you humble because uh, to just what a what a thrill it is to be in, even mentioned with some of these people wow. that we we idolized. You know. Um, Let's talk about Mirage for a little bit because uh, Mirage is the follow up to, I think, Rolona. And I've heard one of the craziest stories about that song. Supposedly, uh, when Tommy James recorded the song, uh, you know, he with the, with your band, uh, he basically he took the basic track for, I think, Rolona, placed it on a tape recorder and played it backwards. And that's how he wrote the song was it was essentially uh, I think we're low now, but played in the tape machine backwards. And the backwards chord changes for I think we're low now ultimately became Mirage. Right. Yeah, that, uh, well, uh, that's Tommy's story and he's sticking to it. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, uh, I, I wasn't there. Uh, I do know this, that when we recorded the actual master of Mirage, what we did was sampled the heartbeat and played it backwards. Wow, and, and that's how we ended up with that uh, thump sound. Wow, um, but but playing the whole song backwards, uh, uh, yeah, the chord changes would uh, match up for both. Uh, I think we're on now in, in Mirage and Reverse, uh, but uh, nothing else would make any sense. So uh, I think we just sampled uh, those things in order to. Uh, 
come up with that, garage. That's so interesting because what that that sampling it almost kind of sounds like strings are kind of playing that. You know, it, it definitely has that. It definitely has that heartbeat going on. But also, one really cool part about that song specifically is that really interesting harp on that song. Because I I, right. I understand that there was probably some other musicians uh, on that song other than Tommy James and Shondells. Do you remember who else was on that record besides the band? Uh, no, I don't. Because uh, as I mentioned before, when we um, worked with uh, Jimmy Wisner, he had a uh, staff of of uh, players, uh, mostly right. horn guys, horn guys and string guys, and he he tried to get every one of them into every song. I mean, because he uh, you know they depended on him for income, so he was trying to take care of them. So he ended up coming to the studio with ten guys, and we usually uh, uh, just purged half of what he brought in out. Uh, but I just don't remember their names, but they were great players. I know that. Yeah, I think it was Gene Bianco, actually, who played the harp on it on Mirage, actually. Um, so let me let me. OK, so, you know, you had you were you're at Mirage now and you have a couple smaller hits. And now I want to ask you this. You know, it's funny because, you know, as, as many of the big hits that, you know, your band had, there were some songs that you had that were kind of small, you know, kind of chart. The, these songs weren't necessarily like huge top 10 records. They were probably bigger right. hits regionally, but not necessarily nationally. And these songs include Getting Together and Out of the Blue and Get Out Now. And some of these songs that were they weren't necessarily huge top 40 hits. Um, and even even some other songs like, you know, Do Something to Me. And uh, you know, and some and some other ones too, like somebody cares. Uh, what was your favorite sort of like small hit by the Shondells that you felt like should have been much bigger, or you felt like it should have done a lot, lot better than it did? And also, what was like one album cut that never got put out as a single, never, never was released? Period. Well, it was released, but it just it was released as an album, but it was never really pushed as a potential hit song. You felt like could have been another big hit for you guys. Like, what was that? What was that one song? What, what were some of your favorite songs you felt like maybe you felt like should have been considered to be released as singles and you felt like would have been another big hit for you guys? Right. Uh, well, the one hit that we had that was a big hit, but I thought should have even been bigger is Sweet Cherry Wine. Right. I thought. I thought the Sweet Cherry Wine could have been, in my mind, uh, as good as Crystal Blue Persuasion or Crimson and Clover, uh, as far as sales go. Uh, that's how much I, I loved that song. Uh, but as far as those songs that uh, had potential, and uh, we never really released as uh, singles that were album cuts, uh, uh, let, me, let me see. I, I think that uh, uh, there's a song on the Crimson and Clover album called Kathleen MacArthur. Mm hmm. Uh, Tommy James and I wrote that song, and uh, it was one of my favorite uh, album cuts, and I think it could have done fine. Another one is on the Cellophane Symphony album, I believe. It's called Loved One. Mm. Uh, Loved One has, to this day, has potential to be a song. And uh, the one song I wish we had released as a single, uh, but somebody beat us to it, is uh, after we did the Crimson and Clover album, uh, the song uh, "Sugar on Sunday" again. Right. Tommy and Tommy and I wrote, and the click snuck in. And yeah, you know, I album. I probably one of my favorite deep cuts that you guys had. I don't I don't know if you remember this one, 
But it was a song called Baby Baby I Can't Take It No More. I love I think that was on the I Think that, We're Alone Now. Yeah, it was on I Think We're Alone Now, exactly. I love that song. It's really yeah, yeah, I, I like that too. That was really, really good. Really, really good. I mean, just great chord changes, really, really well constructed, really well you know, written song, you know, just with a big chorus right. and the sort of the and the, and the, and the, you know, the quiet verses and the, and then and the classic build up in the pre chorus. I mean, man, I felt like that song should have been released as a single. I mean, it really, it, it was definitely very, very good. And I felt like yeah. that, that was definitely one of those songs that kind of slipped through the cracks for you. But I mean, but I digress because you guys had a ton of hits already, you know, so you were yeah. probably, you were I, probably fine if, if there, if there was, if there was maybe like one or two songs that never really, you know, did anything for you on the charts. Right. Right. The, uh, I mean, I'm taken is also a really good one too. I I love that one too. You know, there was definitely yeah. there was definitely some really really great songs. I felt like definitely probably should have been released as singles, even though they weren't. But you guys, you guys, you guys didn't lose that much anyways, because you you guys most of the singles you put out actually did make the Hot 100. And uh, yeah, so right. let's uh, let's talk about um, uh, Moni Moni because. Man, there are some crazy s- stories about this song, and I kind of want you to verify one, one, one of them with me. So uh, Tommy James was trying to write sort of a he was trying to bring the party rock genre back. And it was popular with certain like chubby checker songs. He was trying to bring back that that sort of like, you know, Freddie Cannon, you know, Tallahassee Lassie. Abigail Beecher he was trying to bring that genre back and at the time because people were really you know 1968 was a very serious year for music and he was really trying to bring back that sort of party rock genre and and basically um, he was trying to think okay I want to write a song with a girl's name in it but uh, I but essentially it's but I don't want it to be I, I was he was trying to come up with the name of it and he couldn't really come up with anything that really satisfied him. He tried. He was trying to come up with kind of a sloopy Laguna name, and he was like, "Man, I, I just I can't really come up with anything. It just I, I, I can't seem to come up with a really cool girl name that would fit." And then basically, they were like, "Okay, so let's just take five. Let's just relax. Let's just you know look look around in our surroundings." And then. I believe they walked out of they were walking around New York City at the time and essentially uh what happened was that they saw a sign in New York a neon sign that was off of a building which was named Mutual of New York and basically it flashed Moni Moni and they were all like oh my god what is that we gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta turn that into something that's it that's our title that's the name of our song you know and basically and that was him and I believe it was him and Richie and Bo Gentry and Bobby Bloom am I correct that's correct yes uh let me fill in some more blanks for you uh 
the uh, creating of Moni was sort of unique. Uh, people ask me all the time, uh, you know, when you write, what, what comes first? The, the lyrics or the, or the music or the right. chord changes or right. rhythm? What, what do you do first? And the answer to that question is all the above. Right. Any, any of the above. Because you might start with a uh, catchy tune and build on that. Right. Or you might you might have some great lyric line. Right. And you build on that. Or in the case of Moni, it started with a track. And how that happened was we were in the studio to record something completely different. And while we were waiting for Bruce uh, to uh, get ready to do our session, Bruce Tommy was telling us about this idea he had about creating a party song. And uh, so he... Uh, we said, well, what's it go like? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, here's the rhythm. And he, he started beating on his, his knee. And uh, so we all grabbed our instruments, and we started jumping in and filling, filling in the blanks to him. And so we ended up, after about an hour or so, we ended up with a really strong rhythm track that had no lyrics to it. All it was is a track. Right. And uh, he loved it, and we loved it. Uh, and then he took that to the eventual writers, Richie and and Bo and uh, uh, Bobby Bloom, uh, and they started writing the song, uh, and they were writing it about a girl, as you said. Uh, but she, they were trying to come up with a catchy name, and they couldn't do it. The most of the lyrics were done, but they didn't have the name yet. So they were sitting out on uh, Tommy's balcony, his seventeenth uh, floor of his apartment in New York City, overlooking the city, and that's when. They saw the sign, Mutual New York building, going off and on. And they said, that's it. That's the winner right there. So that's how it got its name. Wow. That's so interesting. And and I got to say that. How did, like, can you tell me, like, for example, like, do you remember any of the names of the people who were, like, the, because the, one story I've heard is that with that specific song, uh, you know, when, when it came down to, you know, recording it, they invited a bunch of people off the street you know, to come inside Allegro Studios, which is, by the way, in the basement of the Brill Building, 1650 Broadway. Uh, basically, they, they invited a bunch of people and started shouting, you know, the, the song's chorus, and they started going nuts with that song. Do you remember the names of any of those people that went in there to, to, to uh, you know, were they just random people that you guys got off the street? Uh, I, I know one, uh, Melanie. Wow. Uh, you, remember, you remember Melanie? Melanie was uh, the girl who had uh, a couple of hits. I'm trying to think of the name of them. Uh, anyhow, she re- she recorded at uh, Allegro also. Uh, wow. And whoever was in whoever was in Studio B with her, we got them to come over, and we ended up with about ten people. Wow. And, uh, that's how we created the party party song. Wow, and that that's so interesting. And also, uh, Kent, you know, Kenny Laguna, he he's playing on a lot of those songs, right? Because he is is he the guy playing piano on Moni Moni? Because is he is, is, he, is is Kenny Laguna the guy playing piano on Moni Moni? The dun 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 was he was he the guy playing piano on that? I know he played on the uh, original uh, uh, demo that we played, but I'm not sure he played on the on the. Uh, he might have because I'm not sure if Ronnie was there or not. I think he he might have yeah. Yeah, because the you know and also what kind of organ were they using in that in that song specifically that ding. Ding, ding, what do you, you remember? Like who? What kind of organ was that? And it, it, we mostly used the B three in the Allegro Studios, but it had a uh, a few very nice uh, characteristics to it that you could 
come up with some unique sounds. So I'm sure it was the B3, but I don't know what what it was set to. And right, and you don't and you don't you don't remember if it was Ronnie Rosmer or someone else, right? I think it was Ronnie. Oh wow, that that's yeah. that's super interesting, you know. And also, yeah. one thing I've noticed is that you know it, on that song, it almost kind of sounds like there's a there's a drum loop going on, as far as them copying and pa- copying pasting that drum loop. Is that is that is that true that the, that they actually copy and pasted that drum loop in that song? Yeah, we we've, we've done that a lot of times. Um, the it seemed to make it bigger when uh, we experimented with that. So right, we we went, we went with that a lot of times. Right, and anyway, so the so and the the song was released. And I want to say like May of nineteen sixty eight, and by the summer it was in the top ten, and it was another huge hit for you guys but this is when things start to get interesting so you basically it was released right it was it was it was a huge hit it made the top 10 like i want to say august of 1968 it was july august and then you guys go out on the road supporting hubert front humphrey who at the time was running for president and then this is and this is kind of when things kind of segue into crimson and clover because you know when you know when you went on the road before you went on the road with Hubert Humphrey, all the bands that were having the most success or having the most hits, they were all singles bands. They were the Association. They were the Grassroots. They were the the Rascals. You know they were all these bands that Gary Gary Puck and Union Gap. I mean they were bands that were essentially their bread and butter. They were all about the singles. You know, people didn't really give that much much of a thought as far as albums was concerned, except for groups like the Beatles. But that's another story. But anyways, uh, when you guys went on tour with Hubert Humphrey, 90 days later, all those bands, you know, all of a sudden got replaced by album rock groups. I'm talking Crosby, Sills and Nash. I'm talking Joe Cocker, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. You know, there you know there were bands that basically had more of a focus on albums. They were trying to sell albums. They weren't trying to sell singles. They weren't going for that three-minute catchy pop song. They were going for more experimental pieces of art. You know, right. so at this time you're like, oh shit! Like, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna sync with all those other, you know, singles bands that were having hits? You know, when we were when we were having hits, are we going to swim with all those album bands? And so essentially what you did is that and this is when Crimson and Clover came about, because if if I remember correctly, I was reading about this. Richie Cordell at this point and Bobby and Bo Gentry, they all left uh, roulette because roulette wasn't paying them enough. Right. And just to be clear, um, you know what? Exactly. What what kind of how were you guys not paid by roulette? Was it just the how I'm because I would you guys do okay financially as far as touring is concerned and radio airplay? I mean, it was mainly the mechanical royalties is what is what roulette was screwing you guys with. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, we just weren't allowed to see the books. Right. That was it. And we would hire we would hire accountants and, and lawyers. And within three or four weeks of them coming to New York, that be leaving again, saying right. I can't work with this. we can't work with this man. So we, uh, and we were just kids. I mean, we were we were learning the business, but uh, uh, we didn't learn it fast enough to not get screwed. That's for sure. Right. Uh, so that's that's how that happened. Right. And, so, we, and we ended up being afraid to go in and ask for the for the money because of what was happening to other people that gave Morris a hard time. So we just right. sort of we just 
sort of relied on our, our road money, which uh, back then was pretty good. Right. So basically, yeah. So Bobby, so Bo, Bo Gendry and Richie Cordell, they leave Roulette and they join uh, basically uh, Buddha Records and they start working, you know, with 1910 Fruit Com Company and Jerry Kaznitz and Jeff Katz and those guys. And, right. then all of a, right. and then all of a sudden, Tommy James was uh, was left with just him and you guys. And they That's were right. like, "Okay, so what? Are, what are we gonna do for our next song? We got We got to write it." And then he wakes up one morning, and then his favorite two words come into his head: "Crimson" and "Clover." And he's like, "Hmm, that sounds like a really good name for a song. I think I might as well. I think I might put that down and you know call that." Our, what would be our next song, which was going to be Crimson and Clover. There wasn't really any, any underlying meaning behind that other than that it was it was two favorite words kind of meshed together. And then basically, you know, once, once he kind of had, had that, that's when he worked with Eddie Gray to come up with the rest of the music. But I, did, did you, I believe you did, you didn't, didn't you have a co-write on this or something like that? I'm just curious because I know... Uh, I've 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 heard conflicting sources to whether or not you co-wrote the song or not. Yeah, well, let me give you the history on that. Uh, first of all, uh, the uh, the song was written twice. Wow. Uh, when we uh, when we first came up with the title, Tommy and I came up with the title, and uh, we loved the title, and we thought, man, this has got to be a killer song because the title is so great. So we started writing, and we tried for about a month, maybe six weeks, uh, and we ended up with a song, but not one that we thought the, the lyrics did the title justice. So we said, let's just let's just put this aside and uh, see what happens. We'll come back to it some other time. So we put it aside, and one day Tommy and Pete were together. And uh, Tommy calls me and he says, listen to this. And uh, he started playing the Crimson and Clover that everybody would recognize these days, uh, not the one that he and I wrote. Uh, and I just loved it. I said, good, that's, that's fabulous. Let's, let's go with it. So uh, we ended up uh, uh, recording that version and not the version that he and I wrote. And I agreed to uh, not have my name on the song. Wow. Because although I was part of creating the title, I didn't really contribute much to the lyrics, so I took my name off of it. Wow, that's so crazy. And by the way, you know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, that that specific song, uh, you know, it's got one of one, there's one specific part of it that's really, really cool. And it's actually highlighting you. There's there's a there's a bass solo on that. Was there was there any was that that, that must have been one of the first times you ever really got. Uh, a a bass solo, you know, that is so cool. Like, was right. was that was that Tommy's idea for you to have like a like yeah your own little you know bass solo in that song? Uh, no, that there there was no break there originally. But uh, when uh, when we went into the next part of the song, that's the line I was playing. So Tommy says, "Hey, I really like that. Let's let's take the other instruments off, and let's just leave the bass on that particular part." And that's how that happened. Wow, that's so interesting. And by the way, um, you know, yeah, and, and again, that's another song recorded at Allegro Sound Studios, and you know, and again with Bruce Staple Engineering. 
And uh, also that song, you know, there, there's only really three musicians on it. There's you, there's Tommy, and then there's Peter Lucia, right? Those are the only three players on that song, right, for the most part? No, no, no Eddie Gray was on there, too. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, he was on there. In fact, uh, he, did, he did almost all of the long version uh, additions to it. Right. Uh, that That's the other yeah. crazy thing about that song is that, you know, mo- most of the time back in those days, if a song was like seven minutes or six minutes long or 11 minutes long, they would they would have you go back in there and edit back, edit out, all, you know, all of the songs, all the parts that mean long and create like a shorter version of it for AM radio airplay. But this was the opposite yeah. with uh, Crimson Clover is with what happened with Crimson Clover is that. The original version was the three-minute version, but then when you released it, it became so popular that essentially the the DJs were like, "We need the FM radio version of it," and that's when you went back in there and recorded the longer version of it, like the five six-minute version of it. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. We were trying to fit in the the FM marketplace, right? Uh, and what what really helped us with uh, having that song fit that category was even before we did the long version of it, a lot of the tremolos and vibratos and so forth that were on the three-minute version uh, were done by Eddie Gray. He, he came up with a lot of that stuff. Wow. Uh, and so uh, that, that's when it really became magic. That sort of gave it its own personality. Right. And also, what kind of do you remember what kind of guitars Eddie Gray were using on that song as far as his setup is concerned? Like, what kind of, you know, was he was he using an amps or was he plugged in direct? Because those are some really... Insane guitar tones on that record for sure. A lot of, a lot of like a, a lot of tremolo and a lot of reverb and a lot of you know. Uh, I mean, was he was he using that specific? Was he using a specific kind of wah wah pedal like the, you know? I'm just curious if you what do you remember about the kind of gear he used on that song? Uh, he did use a wah wah pedal for part of it. Uh, the uh, the uh, tremolo part uh, we went through a uh, Fender reverb amp. Wow. And uh, we also did that with uh, some of the vocals, but through Fender Reverb Band. To wow. get some of the, you know, that song. Wow. So, uh, so again, it was, it's like I said before, that part of our success was all that experimentation that we did. And right. We lived, we lived in the studio. We just loved to go in and screw around. Right. So uh, it really helped us. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and one really crazy story I've heard about Crimson and Clover, and this is pretty nuts. the The version that everybody remembers, the version that was in the top, that was in the charts, it was a top forty hit, was a rough mix. And then basically, the story goes about the specific part of the, of the, of the of this specific uh, song, is that Tommy James goes in the studio, right, and he and he and he, and he m- messes around with a seven and a half inch uh, version of the song. And he was like, okay, this is sounding okay, but I think we could probably do some improvements on it. And basically, like, the next day after he listens to that rough mix version, you know, he basically takes that with him to do a show in Chicago. And one of the reps from WLS basically hears that rough mix version of it because Tommy James supposedly played played it for him. And then Tommy, and then he's like, wow, this is sound great. You know, you have any more versions of it? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. I can, I'll go back in the studio when I go back, when I get back into New York and I'll create like a more, uh, better version, better mixed version of it. And then what happened was that he didn't, he never got to do that. 
And the what happened was that the the guy from WLS, I think he was a promotion man, he took the rough mix back to WLS and premiered the song on the radio, and that was it. That was the version that got released as a single, and then that was pretty. And he never got to remix that song. Yeah, the uh, that situation got our ass in a jam. Uh, we we got back to New York after we visited WLS, and uh, Morris Levy was. He come out. Wow. His face was red, and he went. He wanted to kill us. And Tommy said, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And he said, "I'll show you what's wrong." And he said, "Look at this." And there was a huge wreath that WCFL from Chicago sent to Roulette, and on it it said, "In memory of the Shondells." Uh, wow. That was their way of saying Tommy James and the Shondells are dead here in Chicago. We're not going to wow. play them anymore. We didn't get. We didn't get the last release. We didn't get the last uh, premiere. We didn't get this premiere. Uh, that's it. So uh, wow. we had a we had a hell of a time uh, patching that up, but uh, yeah, that that got us in a real jam. Wow, that that's so crazy. And by the way, um, do you like was there like did you, this was in nineteen sixty nine, right? This was in the late this was in the late sixties. Um, do you do you have any 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 as far as any memories of like going out? It, were you still were you still playing with the Rascals and the Beach Boys and some of those other bands? You know, by by this time, like as far as you doing any touring is concerned. Uh, what happens when you get further along in your career and you've got more of a reputation? Yeah, is you and you end up closing shows, uh, and so if you're going out with the Rascals or you're going out with uh, the Beach Boys then people are going to be fighting about who closes the show. So what they would do is put us uh, as closers with lesser bands. Right. Uh, so uh, so there wouldn't be any war involved. But yeah, we were still going out with opening acts, but uh, not at the, on the same category. Right. Um, also, uh, let's talk a little bit about... Um, so Sweet... This, this is when it gets really interesting. So with Sweet Cherry Wine... Um, the cool part about this song is that it it's basically about the blood of Jesus and I and and, and I'm not trying to get super religious on here but what happened in this specific part of your band's career is that Tommy James went through a period when he became a born again Christian and I believe this was this happened because he was going through a drug addiction at the time and he was trying to get out of it. And this was one of his ways to sort of get out of being uh, of, of, of being addicted to drugs. And it, he basically became a born again Christian. And Sweet Cherry Wine was written in like literally like less than five minutes and he he mainly wrote the song did he write mainly write the song by himself and also can you talk a little a little bit about the production on that song because i noticed that there were some horn players and there was like a flute player at the end and you know and there was like chimes and there were some i'm sure there was probably some extra musicians on that song but i'm curious if you remember any of the any of their names and if you were there for when those tracks are recorded because at this point you know was allegra was mainly using like a 16 track right or was or had they moved on the 24 track uh, i think it was 16 at the time yeah oh actually i think i actually want to take that back i heard that tommy james actually recorded uh, you know, uh, Sweet Cherry Wine and Broadway Sound Studios because Allegro was a, a, a basically upgrading their equipment from 16 to 24 track. So they actually recorded uh, 
um, Sweet Cherry Drown was recorded at Broadway Sound Studios, not Allegro. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of the co-writer on uh, on Sweet Cherry Wine. Uh, a good writer. Uh, do you happen to know what it is? Oh, um, I, I I don't I can't I can't remember his name either. Um, yeah, but then, anyhow, he um, he and Tommy uh, wrote the, the song. There are two two names on that song, um, and they did the, a tremendous job both with the lyric. I, I loved the lyrics; they were fabulous. And yes, uh, that's what uh, Tommy always said that he uh, was led by uh, the biblical verse that talks about the blood of Christ. Uh, when he wrote Sweet Cherry One. But uh, I wasn't at the uh, uh, Broadway studios. I was only at the Roulette studio, so I I don't know who was there, and I don't know who did uh, the original. Huh. Interesting. Um, that's that's really... So you have no idea, like, who are, who are all those extra, like, you know, musicians on the song as far no. as... Uh, okay, got it. Um, so, I don't. so let's talk about... Uh, so that again, that was again another huge hit. Like it was like I think it was in the top ten, you know. And right. and basically, uh, the the sequel to that specific song. And by the way, this is my all time favorite Tommy James and the Shondells track. And this is literally I I love the song. It's so good. I I I can't get enough of it. Actually, I did it on my podcast once before. It's called Crystal Blue Persuasion. Um, this is definitely my favorite song, and I tell you why. I'm going to tell you why it's my favorite song by them. Um, I'm a musician myself. I I the uses my all time favorite chords in pop music. It uses those minor seven chords, and that's what makes it. That's what makes it so good because I love the sound of those minor seven chords. I love major mm-hmm. seven chords too, but those minor seven chords sound absolutely phenomenal and i want to talk about that with you because again this is his it was the sequel to sweet cherry wine so he was going into that born again christian kind of a thing with this specific song except that he was referencing a a section of the bible from the book of ezekiel and the section of the bible was talking about the lake of crystal blue um are you asking me? Yeah, exactly. I kind of, I kind of want you to, you want, I want you to take it yeah, from there. The, um, first of all, let, let me uh, put things in perspective a little bit again. Uh, the uh, Tommy and uh, most of the group members uh, were uh, Christians uh, well before this time period. Wow. Uh, Saint Vincent College is a Christian school. Right. Uh, so when we were going to, as the raconteur was going to St. Vincent, uh, that was a part of the criteria. Um, however, when we got together, uh, uh, we seldom went in that direction writing until about this period. And, and I think you're right. It's probably pushed a little bit by Tommy in his effort to uh, get away from having to fulfill some of his obligations relative to drugs. Uh, but anyhow, that, that's what led us to that point. Um, now, regarding the song "Crystal Blue" and where the title came from, um, I uh, I do a lot of reading, Bible reading. Right. I'm very I'm very familiar with Ezekiel. Right. Uh, there is absolutely no place in Ezekiel that talks about the lake of uh, crystal blue. Uh, so I don't know where that came from. 
come out of Ezekiel. Um, uh, the, uh, my memory to the title itself uh, goes back to when we were in, I believe it was in Atlanta, and we were backstage with a, an opening act, and we were just back there kibitzing and, and talking. Uh, and during that conversation, we were talking about the peace movement that was going on back then. And when one of the guys in that conversation, not in our group, somebody else, but when he was talking about what the peace movement was like, he said, you know, it's like a sort of like a crystal blue persuasion going over the earth right now. Wow. And uh, Tony and I looked at each other and sort of just nodded, like, I got that. And um, that's my memory. My memory, you know, after after 55 years, Sam, uh, a lot the a lot of opinions change about what really happened. Right. <laughs> but that, I, that that's the that's the best of my memory. What wow. happened? And, and if you go back to the words of the song, uh, when we uh, when we were writing the song, Tommy and I wrote the lyrics. Um, we went uh, back to, you know, what does crystal blue persuasion mean? What are we trying to write about here? Uh, and we said, well. When the guy used it, that said it for the first time, he was talking about the peace movement and wow. talking about love and, and loving a new thing that's going over the over the earth. And you can just listen to the lyrics uh, of the song, Look Over Yonder, What Do You See? Yeah. The sun is arising, most definitely. Uh, people are changing in a beautiful, crystal persuasion. I mean, that that's what the song was about. It wasn't about anything biblical. It was about the peace movement. Wow. Um, so uh, that's that's what my memory is of, of where the song came from and how it, how it was put together. Wow! And the and what really made that song uh, is that while Tommy and Tommy and I were writing the lyrics, uh, Eddie walked in one day and uh, Tommy was playing the song for him. He said, "How do you like this?" Tommy said, "Let me have that guitar." And he started playing that flamenco line. Wow! And uh, we said, "Holy mackerel!" What do we have here? And uh, so uh, that's uh, that's how the total sound sort of came together. Right. And was it Tommy's idea for you to solo you out, like in that midway through the song, where it's just like bongo and tambourine, and it's you? And by the way, the the musicians on that record, if I I want I want you to correct me on this if I'm wrong, it was you on bass, Eddie Gray on flamenco guitar, uh, Ronnie Rosin playing the B3 organ. And it was Tommy James playing the guitars in that song, right? Was he was he was he playing those uh, was he playing those like tremolo guitars and some of that some of that rhythm uh, guitar yeah, both parts? He and, both he and Eddie played those lines, yes. Right, right, and uh, you know, and by the way, it's so interesting that actually brings up one other interesting story about the production on that song is that Tommy James has told the story that. When he originally went in the studio, again, this was Allegro Sound Studios, right? Again, the same studio that you guys have been using. That's correct. Um, when they went in the studio to record this, uh, he came. He actually had a full rhythm section, you know, three guitars, you know, a, a you know, bunch of keyboards and a full drum set. And then he's like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like Crystal Blue Persuasion anymore. It doesn't sound like the same song anymore. So he literally had he, he he felt like he overproduced the song, so he had to unproduce it by taking a bunch of things out to the point where it was just you know bass, flamenco guitar, tremolo guitar, an organ, and then the bongos and the tambourine. Is that true? Because he did he really have to unproduce that? 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't recall that it being so big of a deal, so much wholesale changes. I, I do recall us taking several instruments out of there because they were just going in the wrong direction. Right. Uh, but the, the, there were definitely changes made to reduce uh, the tracks in that song. Right. And to the better, I might add. Right. And also, uh, Tommy James is the guy who played the tambourine and the bongos on that song, right? That iconic bongo intro and all the all the percussion in the song, that was him, right? Uh, I thought Peter played the bongos. Oh, okay. Interesting. Pete, uh, Tommy may have played the tambourine, but I think Pete played the bongos. Right. And also, this is, this is one question I've always had about this specific song, is that, yeah, I mean, they, they try to unproduce it, but... Like halfway through the song, during the modulation section, there's horns on that. Now, w- were you there when they recorded the horns? Like, do you do you remember like who those who those horn players were? Because I always found it interesting how he literally tried to unproduce the song, and then like when when the, when the song goes from A major to B flat major, there's a whole horn section that happens. Yeah, no, that was an afterthought. Um... We did our part, and the, the, the whole track was pretty much done without any horns. Uh, the, what we thought was the finished product was complete. Uh, and then uh, the Shondells went home. We went back to Pittsburgh. And then Tony went, decided to go back in the studio and add, add the horns. And I'm glad he did. I, I love the horns. Uh, but uh, I wasn't there for that, so I, I don't know who the hell they were. Wow. That, that's so interesting. Um Okay, so yeah, I and I gotta say again, you're using and again you're using that Fender jazz bass, and you're playing with a pick, right, for most of these songs, you know? Yeah, yeah. That that's that's also kind of interesting because again, that was more of a pop rock thing. It wasn't much of an R and B thing, you know, with with songs from right. that time period. You know, R and B players they mainly played bass with their fingers, you know. But also, I actually want to ask you. Did were you ever thinking to yourself, okay, so does does this song sound a little bit like Grooving by the Rascals? Were you were you thinking to yourself you were kind of going for that Rascals, you know, Blue Eyed Soul, Felix Cavalieri, Eddie Bergatti vibe? I mean, I know you played with them a lot, and they're actually my my number one favorite band in the sixties. But were you thinking that they were you were trying to sound like them at some at, at no, to was, some degree? I was trying to sound like Chuck Rainey. Really. Uh, <laughs> He played. He played on Groovin', um, but uh, yeah, I, I thought uh, of Groovin' when I did the line to Crystal Blue uh, because it had that same right. type of uh, what do they call it? Uh, Afro-Cuban combination right. of instruments on it. Right. And I just thought it went perfectly with uh, what was going on in the rest of the song, especially after Eddie put that flamenco guitar on there. Right. Yeah. I mean, it basically it had that Rascals grooving kind of a vibe to it. You know, so obviously, obviously, you know, Tommy James was probably thinking about that song when he was recording Crystal Blue Persuasion because grooving came out a couple years earlier in 1967. So he probably had that song Mm -hmm. in mind when he was when he was uh, recording Crystal Blue Persuasion, you know, and, uh, you know, and also um, I, another really cool part I love about that song is when it goes double time at the end. That that was right. really cool. I, I, I like that part. I like that part of the song a lot, too. And I really want to say that you're you're definitely highlighted a lot in that song, too, you know, especially in that breakdown section. You know, that was that was really cool that Tommy James yeah. decided to highlight you so much in that song. You know, I got to hand it to him for that. 
Well, I, I told him I would quit if he didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no, he, he, liked, uh, he liked the bass line as much as I did. I was very proud of that bass line. Yeah. I get, uh, compliment, I get compliments all the time about yeah. that song. Yeah, I've, I, I've, I've played that bass line before, and it's it's really, really cool. And yeah, I mean, it, it almost it also kind of hints to James Jamerson a little bit, too, because it's definitely funky. It's not very simple. There's a lot of different extra notes in there so it has it, it does hint a little bit to motown and what was going on over there too you know so yep, it does sure. it has a combination that james jamerson chuck rainey kind of a vibe and again it's with the the, the fender jazz bass plugged into the ampeg right and what model ampeg were you using at the time actually the model ampeg it was a uh, d18 i believe uh, it had the big 18 speaker in it wow 100 watts. Wow, and do you remember do you remember the when we were you do you remember what kind of mic they used on your on your amp? Uh do not recall that. No, I don't. Okay. All right. I no never worries. got that I, I never got that technical in the studio. That was Eddie Gray. Yeah. Eddie Gray and uh, Bruce Staples and Tommy were the techs. They were the the geeks right? of our uh, uh, of our group. But uh, right. Ronnie and I we just we just played the music. Right. I, I would imagine those were the guys who kind of covered all the all the technical aspects of it. Um, right. So let's right. so okay. So Crystal Blue Persuasion was a huge hit, and this was in the summer of 1969. And I've actually heard a funny story about how, essentially, uh, your your uh, what happened was that uh, Tommy James, like you, you guys were offered a date to play Woodstock because a song was in the top 10 when Woodstock was happening and he got a phone call from Artie Kornfeld's secretary and he call and she calls you is like, Hey guys, um, Artie's putting together the show at a pig farm in upstate New York. And you guys were in Hawaii at this time, you know, just living the, living your best lives at this point. Cause you just had a huge, another, another huge top 10 record. And essentially in, in, uh, her, the secretary calls you goes, guys, guys, Hey's, uh, we're we're Artie Kornfeld's putting together this really big show in upstate New York at this pig farm. Uh, it's going to be really really big. It's probably going to be history making. It's going to be record breaking. Millions of people are going to be there. And and basically, you know, they were very. You guys, if I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this you were very hesitant to leave Hawaii at this time to go to a pig farm in upstate New York and play a show. And uh, they were like, okay, well, you really want us to leave right now where we're kind of experiencing paradise and we're just really having a lot of fun. Um, yeah, well, you know, you can tell Artie that if we're not there, they can start without us. <laughs> That's crazy that you guys <laughs> turned down an opportunity to play at Woodstock. Is that true? Uh, you're killing me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> reason, reason I say that is... Uh, that's probably the biggest disagreement in our career that Tommy and I have. Uh, I wasn't there if somebody called and let us go to Woodstock, so I can't say if that happened or not. Uh, however, I can say this. When Woodstock was going on, we were in Mexico. Uh, we had gone from Hawaii to do the uh, Atlanta Pop Festival in Atlanta, then had a week scheduled in Hawaii or in uh, Mexico, um, and some stuff happened in Mexico. As we ended up getting in a jam. I won't get into that. Uh, and uh, we couldn't uh, make the next date. We had to cancel. But uh, 
my recollection is we were not in Hawaii when Woodstock was going on. We were somewhere else. Wow. So uh, that's about as far as I want to take that conversation. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't like to get into into battles with people. Yeah, uh, I, I hear you. I, I, I hear so, what you're saying. So, but i got to uh, be honest, too. So I'll, I'll take it as honest as I can, as far as I can. Yeah, that, I, I, that's about I, it. I hear you. Um, so, okay, so let's talk about kind of what happened sort of towards the end of what was going on with Tommy James and the Shondells, because you had Ball of Fire and then you had She, which is, by the way, another really killer song. I love that track a lot. It's got it's got a really it was good. yeah. It's got it's it's super interesting because it's got those it's got those two. Uh, it's basically it's two kind of it's it kind of feels like two songs because it's in two different keys. It's an F major and C major, but it sounds incredible and it's it clocks in right at two minutes it's a really it's a really it's a really interesting song and that was the last top 40 hit you would have with tommy james now what what happened let me me say something let me say something at this point uh i'm going to uh blow both tommy james's horn and my horn a little bit uh but when i look back on our career I think the greatest songs we ever put out were written by Tommy and I. I think we did one hell of a team job working together. And I was sorry to see that end, very sorry. Uh, but uh, all, all good things have to come to an end. But when you when you look at, like, uh, Crystal Blue Persuasion and Ball of Fire and Sugar on Sunday and even Crimson and Clover and some of the other uh, majors that we had, uh, we, uh, we were writers on those things, and... Uh, if we had continued, I think we could have done even better. But I just wanted to throw that in there just so if people, those people who think I may be picking on Tommy a little bit, uh, I'm not. <laughs> no, I, 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 don't, I don't think you are either. And you're, you're just kind yeah. of saying things in kind of in retrospect, but I kind of want to figure out, uh, I kind of want to talk about what exactly happened with the band when kind of things were coming to an end. Because I heard that one, there heard one specific story that, uh, Tommy basically collapsed when you guys were doing a show in some specific state. I can't remember the name of the state, but you know he basically he uh, what happened was that he uh, he he felt like he had a, he was having a drug overdose, and then he was mispronounced dead. And then after that, he left and started his own solo career. But I kind of want you to fill in the blanks was kind of what happened with that 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 very end. I want to say early like the first couple months of 1970. Sure. Um, yeah, that was really, as I already said, that was a very disappointing time for me because I thought we had a lot going on, and I thought we had a future even beyond what we uh, called a day. Um, but I guess we uh, uh, we should have saw, the, saw it coming because uh, uh, it was obvious to the group during those last few months together that the pressure was building on Tom, uh, that uh, he was worrying about, and we were all worrying about, when's the next hit coming, Who's, uh, what, what song are we going to put out next? Uh, you know, our bills are going way up, we're traveling high on the hog, uh, uh, increased fiscal responsibilities, and we're fighting with records about getting money, and uh, uh, then on top of all of that, he's getting strung out on, on drugs, and uh, uh, we just knew that something was going to happen, we didn't know what, so... One day it, it happened. He came to us and he says, fellas, he said, I'm done. He said, I, I can't do this anymore. He says, i got to take a break. I don't know how long it's going to be. He said, but uh, 
I'm going to take a few months off and um, uh, just try to get my head straight. Um, then, you know, afterwards, we'll get back together. So uh, there we were, the, the Shondells, with uh, no income from the road, no income from Morris Levy, because <laughs> he doesn't pay his bills. Uh, and now what? Uh, and we even thought about going back on the road with that Tommy, but Roulette they wouldn't have any of it. They, they thought we would be screwing up the brand. So, um, so we decided to uh, form a group, and we decided, you know, we'll go ahead and put a group together, and we'll start writing, because most of the stuff we had written up until that point all went to Tommy James and the Sean Dell's pro- projects. Right. We had, we had nothing in the can. Right. So uh, we, we formed the group, started writing, and after about six months, uh, uh, we were ready to go in the studio, and by that time, we had decided that uh, not only is it unlikely that Tommy's gotten his head straight by now, and where he'd have called us, um, but uh, we uh, also heard that he was back on the road doing solo concerts with a bunch of um, cheaper musicians that didn't cost him so much money. So, um, so we just uh, figured, okay, it's over. So we just continued on, and the group we started was Hog Heaven. Uh, Hog Heaven uh, recorded two albums uh, on Roulette Records. One of them was released and one was, was canned. It was just set, set aside. Um, and we did have two two chart singles, uh, not very high on the charts. So one was called Happy, and the other was called It Feels Good, Do It. Uh, but uh, that lasted about uh, two years, and uh, then we went on to different things. So uh, wow. broke up we went on to different things together, but it was a very sad time. Wow. That's uh, really interesting. And uh, to this day, um, just to just to clarify with anybody who's who's wondering, I won't go into too much detail about this, but Tommy James has his own band where he plays with a bunch of guys that weren't in, in, in the original Shondells. And then the original Shondells, which were you, Eddie Gray, and Ronnie Rosman, and Peter Lucia, who I believe passed away. I'm not really sure exactly how long ago yeah. that was. But yeah, he passed yeah, away at yeah. a very young age. I think he was like 36 or 37. Wow, that's crazy. And, uh, he, yeah, he passed away. He had an aneurysm, I believe. Wow. And it was a very young man. Yeah, he was the drummer in all those hits. And yeah, so basically... Was, yeah, so basically um, you, Eddie Gray, and Ronnie Rosman are, are, are basically uh, in, in, a, in a band together. And, and, you know, and basically, uh, I believe as of right now... You're touring as the as as the Crystal Blue Band, which is again, you know, uh, uh, ver- uh like Tommy Tommy James's original band without Tommy James, and uh, I want to say that I want to ask you this: um, when you when you when you, when you uh, do a, a lot of these shows, like as a Crystal Blue Band, uh, do you do you run into anybody that's in their twenties or thirties, or you know, or someone that's relatively young? you know, who discovered your band's music just from, you know, from their parents or do you like, do you, do you, or is, or is 90% of the crowd, a lot of these shows are most of them, uh, you know, people like baby boomers who grew up with this music, you know, people in their fifties and sixties. I'm curious to see if, if there's anybody in, you know, in my age group that's come up to you and been like, wow, I love your music. It's really, really good. You know, I'm curious yeah, we, if you, if you if you if you've run into anybody like that, or if it's mostly you know yeah. baby boomers. No, it happens all the time. Uh, 
I think one of the things that's happened over the years that has caused that to occur, where young people are back into our music, is that, number one, we've had our, our major hits covered by the biggest names in the, in the country over and over again. Uh, Tif Tiffany took, uh, I think, we're alone now all, all the way back up to number one. Uh, Joan Jett took uh, Crimson Clover back up to number one. Billy Idol took uh, Mooney Mooney back up to number one. Uh, Santana redid Crystal Blue Persuasion. Wow. Uh, uh, Prince redid uh, a version of Crimson. Uh, Tom Jones recently had on the live. Uh, and our, our music, uh, this past six months ago, I got a statement. Our music has appeared in 32 major motion pictures wow. over the last 10 years. Uh, so um, all of that put together explains why, yeah, we've got a cross-section of fans across the country, uh, not all of them that go back to our day, but all of them that go back to our music. Wow. And, uh, we, we see that a lot. Wow. That is so cool. I mean, just like that, that's insane that you, your, your music has been used in 32 movies and has been covered by all these really big names. And it's just incredible. Like the, the longevity that your music has had, how, how the, the incredible pair of legs that has been able to walk on over, over these last, you know, all like 50 plus years. It's just insane. And I, and just a, just an FYI, I first heard your music because I was listening to an oldies radio station called Kareth 101 that used to play a lot of, you know, music, you know, from the late fifties and sixties and early seventies. And it was a really cool, uh, you know, oldies radio station. I heard a lot of these songs and, you know, including a lot of your songs specifically, and they don't really play that music anymore. It's eighties and nineties. And I feel like a lot of, you know, oldie stations are really trying to basically keep themselves up to date by playing songs for late seventies and eighties and not trying to fall right. behind, you know, right. and really what I'm trying to do with this specific podcast and, you know, is to basically preserve the legacy of those bands. So that way, when all the baby boomers die off and they and they're no longer on this planet, there's co coming generations, including mine. And, you know, even a couple, even a couple, couple before mine, you know, like the millennial and Gen X, they can, they can look back on this very specific time frame in history. They can listen to this and they can kind of get a bird's eye view of what actually happened from people like yourself who were there and were, and were in the mm -hmm. thick of it, you know, and right. really, and this, and this, and this is my basic point with with me interviewing guys like you is to show them like exactly like what went down with specific you know songs and artists from that era from people who were there and really just to you know and in almost you know almost kind of like an historical document that's imprinted you know that's that's forever going to be living on the internet uh, with right. with that's this uh, with this uh, with this podcast you know and yep, by the, that's a good idea. yeah I mean just and just also and just to sh you know show them that you know this music can also be very very relatable and a lot of people in my age group can can love this stuff just as much as the baby boomers you know and i and i feel like and and i'm hoping that with 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 each podcast i do i'm hoping that you know young more younger people are discovering it you know so basically yeah, that's that's, that's that's kind of that's kind of my goal with it you yeah. know so i wish you success in that that's, that's a great uh, Great target audience. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, 
but yeah, so I think I'm going to wrap things up, Mike. I want to say thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast today. By the way, this is episode 100 of my show. So you're the hundred. So you're the ninth guest I've had on my podcast and you're part of the hundredth episode I've done on my show so far. You know, Beautiful. so I, I, yeah, I, I definitely, I've, I've definitely done a lot of, uh, of episodes, a lot. Uh, I've done a lot of episodes and I've done a lot of interview episodes and uh, I think I got uh, quite a lot out of um, you know those uh, those uh, you know our interview today, and I hope hope you enjoyed yourself. I mean, I oh, was I, I was uh, what did you say? I'm just saying yes, I did very much. I uh, I thought that you uh, had some very good questions, and uh, and again, I say you did your homework, which is always great for a journalist to be. So, right, uh, that's great. Yeah, and also um, I was going to ask you about like some upcoming. Uh, tour dates if you know like you know if but I, I but I, I decided you know what it's probably not a good idea obviously with what's happening right now in our world so I, I thought I might as well just uh, put put off from saying that but I do want to say that if, if there's anything if there's any like sort of if there's any kind of promo you want to do for the band you're in right now the, the crystal blue band if there's any like you know where where they can find you online just in case they want to they want to check yeah. you out i mean just also give us a little rundown on like who does what as far as the crystal blue band is concerned is because yeah, i've never sure. i've never seen you guys i've only seen tommy james once and that was at a fair in in, uh, in Derrick county but i'm just curious to see like what you guys currently do with those songs and you know yeah, and, and if any of those deep cuts are in the set list as well yeah um well, first of all, let me give you a few, few references. Uh, uh, the Crystal Blue Band is the, the title of the group because uh, Eddie, Eddie Gray and I were part of the writing of the Crystal Blue Persuasion. So right. That's, that's where we got the, the title. So if you go to, uh, on, uh, on the internet, thecrystalblueband.com, right. uh, you, you can go to our website, uh, and you, have the, you can get product on there, and you can get history on there, it also uh, tells you where we're playing. Uh, unfortunately, right now, everything is canceled until right. next year because of what's going on. So you're not going to see any dates coming up, but you will see in, more in the future, I'm trusting. Uh, also, if you go to YouTube, and any of the, the hits that we've had, like Sweet Cherry Wine, uh, Crystal Blue Persuasion, uh, Sugar on Sunday, those three especially uh, are on YouTube by the Crystal Blue Band. So you can see the Crystal Blue Band in wow. concert doing those three songs, Sweet Cherry Wine, Crystal, uh, Crystal Blue Persuasion, and Sugar on Sunday. Wow. Just and and punch, the, punch, in, punch in the title and say by the Crystal Blue Band. It will take you to our... Right. And also, do you, who, do you know who sings the lead on those songs now since you guys aren't playing with Tommy anymore? I'm just curious. Is Do you do you sing lead on those songs or does Eddie or, or oh, yeah, Ronnie? No, Ronnie and I both. Uh, he does uh, probably uh, our album. What we did, uh, Sam, is uh, when we were going, deciding to go back out on the road. We didn't want to mislead people by carrying Tommy James and the Sean Dells uh, CDs with us, right? That would be that would be misleading. So we went back in and re-recorded wow. all of our hits. Uh, and uh, so you'll hear the original Sean Dells, now known as the Crystal Blue Band, playing on our album called Legacy. Wow. Legacy, Legacy by the Crystal Blue Band. is uh, You can buy that online uh, on our website. Or uh, I think that uh, 
you can get it online through some of the uh, some of the music uh, sites too. Wow. Uh, and uh, I also have uh, two albums out. Uh, one is called um, "It's a Pittsburgh Thing," and one is called "In My Dreams." They're all original songs by Mike Vale. Wow. And they're also available on the Crystal Blue Band site. Wow. Uh, uh, what else? Uh, uh, on Facebook, go to Mike Vale fan page. One word: F A N P A G E. Mike Vale fan page, and uh, you'll see uh, my my fan page on Facebook. And then if you go to Mike Vale and you look at the right Mike Vale, because there's probably about twenty of them. Uh, wow. I'm also I'm also there under Mike Vale. So there's some references for your people to. To check things out and see what we're looking. Oh, also Hog Heaven. Right. Uh, Hog Heaven uh, uh, fan page is on uh, Facebook too. Right. So uh, that's about bringing you up to date. All right. Well, um, thank you, Mike, for taking the time and uh, and sharing your story about your band, Tommy James, the Shondells. And by the way, if any of my listeners wanted to learn more about those crazy mom stories about your band they can they can go check out tommy's book me the mom and the music and uh you know and hopefully i'll get to see a movie version of that at some point i don't know when that's going to happen but you know hopefully hopefully have some kind of role in it and you know hopefully the hopefully and i that i i can't wait to see that it's going to be an incredible movie but you know i I, yeah so i mean i don't i don't know when that's ever going to happen but at some point hopefully it will i'm sure we'll hear about it you know when it's 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 being developed but thank you mike i really do appreciate you taking the time to do the interview i really do i i really do no problem hey sam i just wanted to tell you that it's been a ball thank you very much for uh talking to me for so long and i enjoyed it and uh like to also thank all your listeners for the support over the years and uh, stay safe out there and Hopefully we'll see all of you guys down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely uh, keep. I'll put links to your guys's w- websites and all, all that, all that stuff in the description of this episode, this podcast. That way they can just keep, keep following you guys. You know, after, after they're done, after they're done listening to this. Great. All right, partner. All right, Mike. You have a good time. We'll talk to you later. All right, you too. Bye, buddy. All right, bye. Wow. There you have it, folks. Mike Vale, the bass player for Tommy James and Shondells. Wow, that was amazing. That was really, really cool and very insightful and very interesting. And uh, I want to get on here for a minute. And uh, before we move on with the things I say at the end of every single podcast episode, I wanted to get on here and say one really interesting thing about this band and then get in get into something very important point I wanted to point out to you guys and that is that the really cool thing about Tommy and James and the Shondells is that they were basically doing the multi-tracking thing with their songs being they were recording in each instrument track by track and layering them and basically mixing them all together you know in post and basically they were doing that right on the heels of two other bands that had been doing that before them. And those bands were the Beatles and the Beach Boys. I mean, the Beatles were already doing that with albums like With the Beatles and Help and Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper. But, and the Beach Boys had already done that with Pet Sounds. But this band was doing it literally right after those bands. 
you know, they were, I think, the third band to ex- really experiment with multi-tracking. And basically, you know, when they record, I think we're alone now, the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper. And when they record, I think we're alone now, which is, was, by the way, the first record that they multi-tracked, um, the Beach Boys had just recorded Pet Sounds and released it. So that and the Brian Wilson then just put out good vibrations. I mean, it just goes to show you how much on the cutting edge this band was, you know, just as much as the Beatles and the Beach Boys and at that time. I mean, they were really, really revolutionary and that is so cool that they were, you know, basically right right along with them. You know, and even if you've never heard any of their songs and you're a millennial and you're around my age and you honestly just don't really know too much about them. It's cool that they were, you know, just as technologically revolutionary as those two other bands. And I'm sure you know about the Beatles and the Beach Boys, but yeah. And also I wanna the other thing I wanna say is that um a lot has happened since I put out the last episode of my podcast. And for those of you who didn't already know this, and I'm sure if you're an educated millennial like yourself, you would have picked up on this by now. But just in case you didn't pick up on this, but the course of events that have happened since the last episode I put out of this podcast, which was on May 5th of last month, a lot of what has happened since then in America is basically and essentially a repeat of what happened in the 60s and and that is that is everything from the protests against racism that have been going on these last you know five or six days you know to the space exploration that's also happened you know it's just a lot of the same things that have happened in the 60s are happening right now. And that just, I want you to sit sit with that for a minute because, you know, if there's any kind of music that you should be listening to right now, it should be the music from 1968 and 1969 because a lot of what has happened over the last couple of weeks has basically been a repeat of what happened in 1969. And there is something to be said about that. So I really do think that the music, the, the new music that will come out, that will be recorded, that will be recorded is actually, I take that back, the music that is being recorded right now and the music that will be released later on this year will be a reflection of the music that was recorded and released in 1969. So it really is important to kind of look back on that music of 1969 and just see if you can find any kind of similarities between the music of 1969 and what is about to come out and what you're about to hear on the radio and and on the streaming platforms later on this year. But yeah. So anyways, um, if you guys love this interview, thought it was super insightful, super interesting, super cool, and you've never heard of this band before, and you're just now discovering the music for the first time, please email me at samltwillieicloud.com or hit, hit me up on Instagram. My username is iheartholies. And uh, also, 
Um, like I said before, my website's down right now. Um, th- they actually gave me an extension, so it's not technically down, but I took my uh, domain name off of that website, and right now I'm trying to get on my new one that I'm building right now, so I won't put the link to my website in the description of this episode of this podcast, so I'm going to hold off on that until my website is my new website is done and it's out there, and I'll, and I'll release that to you guys. But in the meantime, I will put the link to the uh, Spotify playlist for this podcast for you guys to check out all the songs I've talked about on my show so far. And I'll definitely throw in some Tommy James and Shondell songs into the pod into the uh, podcast playlist. So that way you guys can kind of hear what we talked about on the show this week. And also, um, another thing I'm going to do is that I'm going to post links to... Uh, Mike Vale's current band that he's in right now and some YouTube videos of him playing with that band so that way you can kind of guys can kind of see what he's been up to currently and yeah so um again so uh thank you guys for who've been listening to my podcast ever since episode one I can't believe I made it to episode 100 this is absolutely crazy and again it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the 11.8 thousand people that have tuned in this podcast ever since episode one it's just insane the amount of people that have listened to it and definitely start paying a little bit more attention to the music of the 60s because again a lot of what has happened in the last couple weeks is again a repeat of what was going on in the 60s you know it's you know it's you know again so that means that this music the 60s music is going to have a lot more of a relevance you know, in the coming uh, months, you know, now more than ever it ever has been, you know, in the past. But anyway, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for listening to my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. And cheers to episode 100 in my podcast, and cheers to episode 200 if I ever get that far. We'll see. But um, thank you guys for listening to my podcast and supporting it since episode one. Until next week, please. Keep things groovy.